Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord, and we just pray again that, Lord, you would be magnified and glorified, Lord. And I pray that each heart that's here this morning would be prepared to hear from you. Lord, I pray that no man's words would come forth, but, Father God, it would be that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, I pray that each one of us, again, would just be receptive to what you have for us, Lord, that we'd walk away from this place touched by you. And, Lord, I just pray that there, if there are those here this morning, Lord, that are going through difficulties, Lord, or looking for answers, Lord, I pray that through your word this morning, you would provide those answers. Lord, we thank you. We praise you, Lord, again. We pray that you would just be with our kids right now, be with those who are teaching them as well. Give the kids ears to hear. We just thank you, Lord, for your, your love, your grace, your infinite mercy. You're such a great God. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Lastly, last week in Luke 18, we looked at a worldly or a heavenly perspective. And we saw the, the direct contrast between people who are looking at the world from a worldly perspective and those who are looking at it from a spiritual one. And it's amazing, just the total contrast in, in the way that the rich man was grieved in his heart because he had great possessions. And the Lord told him, go and sell all that you have. And he couldn't do it because he had so much stuff. Whereas the blind beggar... When, he was, when it was his turn, he just left everything behind and he ran after Jesus and then he followed Him wholeheartedly. And the same can be true of us. If we're so focused on the things of this world, it's going to be very hard for us to be of any heavenly good. And you know what? That's what we saw last week. We also saw just the, the way self-righteous people pray, the way they approach the Lord. And we saw the self-righteous Pharisee who came before the Lord in his prayer time and as he prayed, he talked about how great he was. I'm so glad I'm not like other men. But yet we saw right next to him a humble tax collector who said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. May we never approach the throne of grace acting like we've got something to give to God. The reality is we must come with a heart broken before Him. So that was last week. Now this week we're going to look, at, I entitled the message this morning, Divine Appointments. And because we're going to see several divine appointments in the life of our Savior. And you know what? Every one of us has divine appointments in our life every single day. And we're going to see that that's true of Jesus Christ. As Jesus journeys now to Jerusalem, He told His disciples what was going to happen there. In the last part of chapter 18 last week, He said, I'm going to go, they're going to mock me, they're going to scourge me, they're going to beat me, and they're going to crucify me. He said, but on the third day I'm going to raise from the dead. But I'm going anyway. It's amazing that our Savior knew exactly what awaited Him in Jerusalem, but He had an urgency and a burden to get there. Why? Because He knew that unless He was crucified, none of us could have eternal life. Unless He suffered and died in our place, that all of us would face eternal judgment. So He had a burden and a desire to go to Jerusalem, even though He knew He was going to have to suffer when He got there. And so we see, though, that along the way to Jerusalem this morning, we're going to see their divine appointments along with the ultimate divine appointment that would come on the cross. Jesus came to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. The Bible says that He was the, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God knew that His Son would have to suffer and die in our place. So we're going to travel with Him. And here's what we're going to see as far as divine appointments. The first one, we're going to see that our Savior, our loving Savior, is going to seek to save that which was lost. A divine appointment to seek and save that which was lost. We'll secondly see that as our gracious Master, along with being our loving Savior, that He will reward those who are faithful. And then thirdly, we will see Him fulfill the ultimate prophecy as the King of kings and the Lord of lords as He goes to the cross. But as He goes and as He arrives in Jerusalem, we're going to see His heart as He weeps for the lost and at the same time as He rebukes the religious hypocrites. So let's begin in verse 1 as we see our loving Savior seeking the lost. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 19. 
And it says, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. So he's leaving and he's, he's just given the message that he's going to be crucified. He's on his way to Jerusalem. But on his way to Jerusalem, and he could have gone in many different ways, he went through Jericho. Now I want to tell you a little bit about Jericho. I didn't even know this myself until I took some time to look this up last night. You know, Jericho was an oasis. It was a resort. It's 1,100 feet below sea level. It's lush. It's green. It's got underground springs. It's 80 degrees in the winter. This is the Palm Springs of the day. This is the place that people went to who had money, who hung out there. And the Lord, as He's passing on His way to Jerusalem again, many different ways He could have gone, He goes through Jericho. And I believe we're going to see very clearly that the reason He went through Jericho is because there was a divine appointment waiting for Him there. And the divine appointment was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. I love the fact that our God loves us that much. Jerusalem was 15 miles away. Jerusalem was 2,700 feet above sea level. It gets very cold there. Where at the same time in Jericho, it could be 80 degrees and there it could be almost on the verge of snowing. I mean, very, very cold. And so those, again, that would be the vacation spot. And the Lord goes through this vacation spot and He's going to meet a man there. Look at verse 2. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was the chief tax collector and he was rich. Now again, this is the resort area. And this rich tax collector is in the city of Jericho. And down here in the city of Jericho, again, he's vacationing. He's resting. Now Zacchaeus' name means righteous one. But the good news is that he will become a righteous one, but right here he's not living up to that name yet. And I'm so glad that God sees the end. He already knows who we're going to become. You know, the Bible says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. He said that when they were in their mother's womb. Why? Because he knew the kind of man Jacob would become, and he knew the kind of man Esau would become, and he knows the kind of man or woman that you're going to become. And so Zacchaeus' name means righteous one, but that's not true of him yet. But it will be in just a moment here as we go through the verses. Chief of the tax collectors. Again, to finance their great world uh, empire, the Romans levied heavy taxes on every single uh, nation that they ruled over. And the people that were taxed heavily did not like Rome. Now you can imagine being the Jews, you've, you've been delivered from bondage in Egypt many, many years before, about 1,500 years earlier, but now you're in bondage to Rome. And they hated paying taxes, not only because they didn't like paying taxes like we don't like paying taxes, but because they knew that the Romans were pagans and they were idol worshippers. So they were promoting idol worship by paying their taxes, and they hated it. Now imagine, if you will, somebody who's one of your people who goes to work for this evil government. Imagine if you lived in the time of Nazi Germany and somebody in your family or one of your relatives or a close friend went and worked and started working for the Nazi government. That's how they felt. They were reviled by it. They hated the Roman government. And here these Jews were that were being used by the Roman government to collect taxes. Now it says here about him, he was the chief tax collector. So not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, but he was chief among, one of the chiefs among the tax collectors. And it says he was very rich. Now, tax collectors were not aimed to be rich, but they all became rich. And the way they became rich is they abused their authority. Imagine if the people that worked for the IRS had full authority to take whatever they wanted and then just give, making sure they gave enough to the government and they got to keep what was left over. But they had the same authority that they have today. Well, these guys had authority of the Roman soldiers would go with them. If you didn't pay your taxes, you were going to face a sword. 
So guess what? All these tax collectors, not only were they traitors, not only were they serving this idolatrous nation, but they became very rich because of it. So you can imagine that as the people walked by and they saw the tax collectors' big houses on the hill, man, it made them sick. Man, oh, I hate those guys. I can't believe that they would be turncoats like that. What traitors? Well, Zacchaeus was such a man. And again, his name means righteous one, but he was not yet there. So they were viewed, again, as traitors, as thieves, collecting money for the Roman government. Again, the Jews hated the tax collectors. But here's the good news. While the Jews hated Zacchaeus, there was somebody that loved him very, very much. And that somebody was Jesus. You know what? There are people that maybe you and I don't care very much for. There might be people that we immediately judge because of the lifestyle they live or the kind of person that they are. But I want you to know that Jesus loves them. Amen? We need to look at the world through His eyes. We need to love people the way that He loves them. And here there's Zacchaeus, who's this man that was reviled by the world, but Jesus goes out of His way. He passes through Jericho on the way to the cross because there's a divine appointment waiting for Him there. And that divine appointment is a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Look at verse 3. Zacchaeus, it says, And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short of stature. So we know that Zacchaeus was a little guy. And Zacchaeus, again, was drawn by the crowd, sought to see who Jesus was. The crowd, no doubt, had heard about Jesus' miracles. They were traveling with him on the way to Passover. They were coming, this huge crowd. People had gathered in the streets. And Zacchaeus was a little guy, and he couldn't see above the crowd. How many of you guys remember that song from Sunday school? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, right? He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? Remember that song? I learned that when I was about four years old. Well, Zacchaeus was a little guy, and Zacchaeus could not see over the crowd. And so Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. Now this tells me, it says in that verse, that he wanted to see who Jesus was, which means he didn't know who Jesus was yet. He wanted to know. He heard about the crowds. He was curious. He was coming with a childlike faith to find out more about Jesus. And that's the way we all ought to come. He was short in stature, unable to see Jesus. But you know what it says in Romans 3.23? That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen? So just as he was short of stature, he was ultimately short in his relationship with Almighty God because of his sinfulness. And we too all fall short. Most sinners think they're big. They measure themselves by worldly standards, by money, by power, by position. But in Luke 16 it says, For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They think they have everything and they really have nothing. And that's exactly how Zacchaeus was. He was a very wealthy man. He was extremely rich. But you know what? When Jesus came to town, he knew that there was something missing from his life. And he wanted to find out more about this Jesus. Look at verse 4. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Zacchaeus, again, he becomes like a little child. Now, it's considered very uh, childish for a grown man to run, especially if you were an official. They didn't run. That was considered, you know, low. You didn't do that. And Zacchaeus stopped worrying about what men thought for the moment, and he ran. And not only that, esteemed officials, not only do they not run, but they certainly don't climb up trees. But he becomes like a little child and climbs up this tree. It's interesting that it says in Luke 18, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. I think Zacchaeus was curious. Why is this big crowd? Who is this Jesus? Desperate enough to stop worrying about what men think and to go out on a limb, literally, right? 
He climbed out on the sycamore tree. He went out on a limb. He wanted to see Jesus as he passed by. He didn't really know who he was, but he knew there was something special about him. He wanted to find out more about God. He was coming with a childlike faith. Who is this Jesus? Now, what I love about this story is that even though Zacchaeus did not know who Jesus was, Jesus knew exactly who Zacchaeus was. You know what? Even though the world, all the people in the world that don't know Jesus Christ, he still knows who they are. He knows every one of them by name. He knows the number of hairs on their head. He loves them so much that he'd rather die than live without them. They're always on his mind. And look what Jesus does as he walks by. Verse 5. And when Jesus came up to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So Zacchaeus thought he was seeking Jesus, but Jesus was really seeking him. And not only did he know him, but he called him by name. He walked by. Can you imagine Zacchaeus? He climbs up in the tree just for the hopes of, I want to learn about this Jesus. Who is this man that's coming by? And as he went by in the midst of the crowd, he's hanging out on the limb, and Jesus stops and looks up and calls him by name. You know what? Before any one of us gave our life to Jesus Christ, he called us by name. Amen? He called you by name. He called you unto Himself, and you responded. If you've given your life to Christ, you responded. He calls you by name. Doesn't that blow you away that the Alpha, the Omega, the Creator of the universe, Almighty God, called you by name? Dave, I want to have a relationship with you. And I love the response that we see in Zacchaeus. It's the response that ought to be in every one of our hearts when God calls us by name. Zacchaeus, again, rich tax collector, sitting up in this tree, divine appointment. The Lord went through Jericho. This was not by chance. There is no chance in the kingdom of God. Amen? We don't need luck. No such thing as good luck. We don't need that. Why? Because we've got the creator of the universe. Amen? Because it's divine appointment. And so here this divine appointment is, he comes along, he sees him up in the tree. Now it's interesting to me that again, he thought he was seeking God, but God was truly seeking after him. Because the Bible tells us that when we sin, we hide from God. You go back to Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. What happened in the garden when they sinned? What did they do? They hid. Remember that? And the Lord sought them out. And here Zacchaeus is a sinner. He thinks he's seeking God, but the reality is that God is seeking him. You know what? God is seeking you. God loves you. He desires to have a relationship with you. He initiates the relationship, not you. We have the opportunity to reject him or to respond to him. And that's where Zacchaeus is right now. Again, Even though Zacchaeus was not even sure who Jesus was, Jesus knew him by name. Here we're going to see the key to salvation. Verse 6. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus could have said, you know what? You're a traveling rabbi. I'm a rich tax collector. You know, I'm fine. I don't need it. You know, I don't need it. I'm, I'm good. I've seen who you are. It's okay. Just keep walking. And some people, that's the way they respond to God. The Lord calls them by name and they say, you know what, I've got other things to do with my life. You know, Lord, I don't want to give up the throne. I don't want to respond to you. I've got my own way, my own life, my own path. But Zacchaeus didn't do that. What did Zacchaeus do? He responded joyfully. He came down and received the Lord. I love that. We see this picture of this this childlike faith that comes out of this very rich and wealthy man, a man esteemed by the Romans and hated by the Jews, but he's loved by the Lord and that's all that matters. And so the Lord calls him by name and he responds. Zacchaeus received Jesus. It's interesting to note again that the Jews looked down on Zacchaeus, but Jesus loved him. Look at verse 7. But when they saw it, this is the Jews, they all complained saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. 
Now this is typical of a self-righteous world. The self-righteous world recognizes the sin of others, but doesn't recognize its own sin. The Bible says again that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that all means all. Amen? So guess what? You're part of all. Which means you're a sinner in need of a Savior just like me. Just like Zacchaeus. Just like these self-righteous Pharisees. But they looked and said, oh man, I can't believe that, the, that Jesus is going in to meet with that tax collector. Doesn't he know that he's a traitor? Doesn't he know that he's a thief? Doesn't he know that he, he takes from our people and he steals from them and he's mounting up riches for himself? Doesn't he understand that? You know what? That's exactly why Jesus came to Zacchaeus. Because he knew he was a thief. Because he knew he was a man who had become a traitor. You know what? That's why the Lord came to us. Because he knew we were sinners. Amen? He didn't come to you because you're great and good looking and your hair is all perfect and you got you know, you your act together. Jesus came to you because you were sinners in need of a Savior. And that's exactly why He came to Zacchaeus. Now we're going to see again the self-righteousness. They stand afar off. But look what Zacchaeus does. Then Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Those of you who are coming on Wednesday night, we just looked at this this week. Exodus chapter 22, for people who are thieves, there was a way that they had to repay. If you had, a, had contrition in your heart because you know you had stolen and you came back, you had to pay 120% of what you stole. If you stole $100, you had to bring 120 back. If they found you, you didn't confess it, but they just found you and you had the stuff with you, you had to pay back 200%. You had to pay back everything that you had taken plus match it. But if you, they came and they found you and you had already sold all the stuff, you had to pay back four times. Isn't it interesting that he volunteers to pay the highest amount? This is repentance. Zacchaeus says, you know what? I'm going to give four times. I'm going to take all, half of all that I have and give it away. And anybody I've wronged, I'm going to pay him four times. not going to pay him 120%, which would have been legal because it was contrition in his own heart. But he said, I'm going to pay the most. I'm going to pay the maximum. Repentance is somebody whose life is being changed. And it's interesting, again, that he doesn't squall, doesn't quibble, but he gladly gives up the maximum. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he is also a son of Abraham. A poor man becomes rich. The world saw him as rich, but he was spiritually bankrupt. As a child of God, he would now truly be rich. And he calls him a son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jews, but he was also the father of faith. And the Bible tells us very clearly that faith without works is dead. Now I want to make this real clear. It's not faith plus works. It's not faith or works. It's faith that works. Amen? When you give your life to God, there will be a transformation in you. When you truly have faith in Him, your priorities will change, your heart will change, your desires will change, everything about you will change. When you become a new creation, the Bible says old things have passed away, all things have become new. How do we know He's the son of Abraham? How do we know He's a mighty man of faith? Because what, 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 what was once important to Him is not important to Him anymore. The riches that were so valuable to Him mean nothing to Him. Why? Because He's met Jesus. You know what? When you have a head-on collision with the creator of the universe, the stuff of this world becomes extremely meaningless. Amen? You know what? When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. When we stand before Almighty God one day, it won't matter how much stuff we had, how much money we had. We won't be worried about our comfort. The closer we draw to Him, 
The more it matters what happens for eternity, not what happens here on earth. Zacchaeus had been touched by the Lord and immediately he said, you know what, I don't care about my stuff. I'll pay him back four times over. I'll give half my stuff away. Why? Because faith produces works. Now, again, it's not because of the good works that prove his faith. It's the faith within him that transformed him to do the good works. We don't earn salvation by doing good things. Amen? You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good things. There are too many religions and people out there trying to say, you've got to do this, 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 and this, and then maybe God will love you. Well, here's the good news. God loves you already. Amen? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came to Zacchaeus when he was a thief. He came to Zacchaeus when he was a traitor. He came to Zacchaeus when everybody else hated him. It was a divine appointment. He went out of his way because he loved him. And God has gone out of his way because he loves you. And we're going to see that at the end of the text this morning. So it says here, again, it's faith that works. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. They thought the Messiah would come to conquer the Romans. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to overthrow the government. And we as Christians, our focus in life should not be to see how much governmental power we can get. Now, I believe that we should, we should vote and those kinds of things. But you know what? I'm not all about politics. I'm all about Jesus. Amen? Because you know what? We can vote. I mean, we should. We should be active. But here's the thing. Our focus should not be on the political realm. Our focus should not be on the, on the, the worldly realm in any way, shape, or form. Our, our focus ought to be on heaven. And the Lord said He came to seek and save that which was lost. Uh, the passion of our life should not be how much money we can make. It shouldn't be you know, how, how buff we can get. It shouldn't be how nice we look. It shouldn't be about our careers. It should all be about Jesus. And that's what happened with Zacchaeus. Because you know what? Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And as, as his followers, we too ought to be ones who desire to seek and save that which was lost. So we move on from, again, that desire for the lost. That divine appointment in coming to Zacchaeus. And now we move on and we're going to see that our gracious Master rewarding the faithful in a parable of the minus. Our Savior not only divinely seeks us out, but He equips us to serve Him and then rewards us for simply responding to Him in obedience. Look at verse 11. Now as they heard these things, He spoke another parable because He was near Jerusalem because they thought the kingdom of heaven would appear immediately. So Passover is coming. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem and the people think, that he's going to come in and overthrow the Roman government, and he wants to make it very clear that that's not why he came. He wants to give them very clear instruction about why he came to earth and what he was about to do. Passover season was always an emotionally charged time for the Jews. They remembered their deliverance out of Egyptian bondage, but they really wanted to overthrow Rome. They were getting fired up about it. Jesus knew that as he approached, that many in the crowd thought he would again become king and rule over Rome. But he's going to give them this parable to make them understand why he really came. Verse 12. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. A certain nobleman went into a faraway country. This nobleman he's talking about is himself. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's nobody more noble than that. Amen. And as the nobleman, he says, the nobleman went away. Now, what has Jesus done after his resurrection? What has he done? He's gone away. He's preparing a house for us. He's in heaven. And that's who this parable is pointing to. 
Look at verse 13. So he called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business until I come. A mina was about three months' wages. And he said, You be faithful until I return. Not sitting on a mountain waiting for him to come, but using the gift he has given us to reach out to a lost and dying world. You know, too many Christians, too many of us, we say, Hey, I got my get out of hell free card. I'm going to heaven. I'm just going to be a pew potato until the Lord returns because I know where I'm going. And I'm just going to make sure I'm as comfortable as possible until he comes back. And that's not the Lord's heart. He says he's going to, he gave them gifts and says, you do business until I return. You be faithful with what I've given you until I come back to take you home. Be busy about his work. Verse 14. But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. It's interesting, these very same words will be said about Jesus in just a few days. We don't want him to rule over us. We don't want him to reign over us. We don't want him in charge of us. And that's the same reason that most people don't want to have anything to do with God today. They want to be on the throne of their own life. Here's the reality, you guys. Only one person can be on the throne of your life. It's either going to be you or it's going to be God. There's no room for both of you. And you know what? God doesn't share His throne. And either you freely give it away, or you stay on that throne yourself. But just remember that whoever's on the throne is going to have to answer for your sin and pay for your sin. It's either going to be you, or you're going to let the Lord do it. The Lord wants to take the throne, and He went to the cross to take your place that you might have eternal life. Now it's interesting that we are living right now between verse 14 and 15. That's where we are. We're right here between these two verses. Now look what happens in verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So regardless of what men say or think, Jesus is coming back. Amen? People can drive around with Darwin fishes on a car as long as they want. I want to tell you right now that Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen? Darwin's dead and Jesus Christ is a risen living Savior who triumphed over sin and death and He's coming back. Amen? And our faith is not in a, in a, dead, in a dead fish or a dead guy or, or, you know, oh yeah, lightning hit a puddle and, you know, a lizard scratched a freckle and grew wings and started flying around and became an ape. Now it's you. I mean, it takes way more faith to believe that garbage than to believe that Almighty God created you in His image. Amen? And so here's where, here's where that, this comes, where it's, okay, we're going to stand before God and we're going to answer to Him and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we as Christians will answer to God for what we've done with the gifts He's given us. Every one of us. And so we see here that He calls Him unto Himself. And look what it says, verse 16. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. You gave me a gift. You gave me one. I want to give you ten. Lord, you gave to me, and because I love you, and you're a great and a wonderful master, I've taken the gift that you've given me, and I've walked in obedience, and here's the fruit that came of it. You know, here's the good news. Not only does he give us gifts, but we'll see that in these first few servants, there is fruit, but the fruit is a result of one thing, just faithful obedience. You know, it's very clear. One of the things we talk about in Calvary Chapel all the time, healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. What makes a church grow? It's not programs, because if you grow them with programs and the flying Walendas on Wednesday night or whatever else you got going on, if you win them with that stuff, you're going to win them to that stuff. But if you win them with the Word of God, you'll win them to the Word of God. And if you guys fall in love with Jesus, you're going to be contagious. You're going to be. When you fall in love with God, you can't help but tell everybody about Him. You know what? I love my wife, and I'll never forget when we got... I wanted everybody to know it. 
I love introducing people to my kids. Why? Because I love them. They're one of the passions of my life. And you know what? I, I love, this is my wife. I love bringing them into work. Yeah, this is my family. Because I love them. But you know what? As much as I love them, we ought to love Jesus more. And just as much as we want to introduce our family to our friends, introduce our family and our spouses to people that we care about, how much more should we want to introduce them to the love of our life, Jesus Christ? Amen? And so here we see, he says, you know what? You be faithful in obedience, and you go out, and it's going to bear much fruit. Not because of your good works, but just because you obeyed. Here, I'm going to give you a gift. Thank you, Lord. Now you just go be obedient with that gift, and then I'm going to multiply it, and then I'm going to reward you for your obedience. What a great an awesome God that we serve. It's interesting, on the day of Pentecost, there was 120 believers. Little more than what's in this room right now. On the end of that day, there was 3,000 believers. A few days later, there was 5,000 believers. And not long after that, the Jews said, you know what, they've infected all of the whole world with the gospel. They've infected everybody. They've infected all of Jerusalem with this message. You know what, may we be a church that has infected all of Santa Cruz with the message of Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. Amen? 120 people who just say, you know, Lord, we'll obey you. Lord, we want your Holy Spirit to fall upon us. Lord, do a mighty and a powerful work and watch out and see what God will do. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Him. He's just looking for those who will be obedient. And we see here that when we're obedient, God bears much fruit. You know what? I know that I know that I know that God is going to continue to bless Calvary Santa Cruz, but it has nothing to do with me or anybody sitting in these chairs. It has to do with God's faithfulness to His Word. Amen? We te- if we teach His Word and we love people, God will do great things. Amen? It's not us. It's not a program. It's nothing else. I praise the Lord for the transformation I'm seeing in many of your lives, just as God's Word is being poured into you. And he said, well done, good servant, verse 17, because you were faithful and very little, have authority over ten cities. A second came saying, Master, your mina earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also shall be over five cities. This blows me away that not only does he give us the gifts and then make them multiply, but then just because we've been obedient, he's going to then reward us. Do I fully understand the reward? I don't really. But you know what? It's amazing to me. I'm not looking for the reward. I have to be honest with you. I'm just looking forward to hanging out with Jesus. How about you? Amen? That's going to be enough for me. But the fact that He wants to reward me on top of adopting me and making me His Son and giving me heaven, the fact that He's going to give me rewards blows me away. I don't deserve them. Wait a minute. You are the one who called me. You're the one who died for me. You're the one who gave me the gift. You're the one that makes it multiply. And then you're going to reward me? How does that work? But that's the God that we serve. What a great and an awesome and a wonderful God. But we'll see, along with those who are faithful, we're going to see the unfaithful. Then another came, verse 20, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept and put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you're an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put the money in the bank that I might, coming, I might collect it with interest? Now, afraid of losing it, the man did nothing. The man did nothing. Sadly, this is much of the church today. Doing nothing for the kingdom of God. 
Too many lukewarm wannabe Christians. Too many, you know, oh, just fitting into the world, conform to the world, living like the world, talking like the world, walking like the world. And you know what? If, if you told people at work you're a Christian, they'd be blown away and they'd laugh. What? You? Really? I mean, if people are shocked that you're a Christian, that's not a good thing. Amen? And if you know, if you've been living life at work for a year and nobody knows you're saved, that's not a good thing either. We're not to be undercover Christians, amen? I mean, people are coming out of the closet for homosexuality. Shouldn't the Christians be coming out of the closet for Jesus Christ? Shouldn't we be boldly saying, hey, yeah, I'm one of His kids. Yes, that's right, I've been born again. I'm a new creation in Christ. And sadly, though, we see many who hide their faith. They don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to, they don't want to oh man, I, I better not say anything. Somebody might, you know, ask me a question I don't have the answer to. I better dial it down, water it down. You know what? When we get to heaven, none of us will wish we had watered it down. And so these unfaithful, again, afraid of losing it. And here's the sad part. He saw his master as someone who was hard and demanding. And it's sad when Christians are motivated by slavish fear rather than loving faith. You know what should motivate us to share the love of God with people? It should be the love of Christ that compels us and the love of Christ that draws them. When you're in love with the Lord, it should be obvious. The Bible says in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. I mean, that's who we ought to be. We ought to love people so much that they think, what do you have that I don't? What is it that's different about you? But some hide it. Unfaithful. Disobedient. Put it in a handkerchief. Why? Because they're afraid of their master. Now we should have a fear of God, but not the kind of fear of a slave towards a brutal master, but the fear that a loving child has for a wonderful father. You know what? His name is is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and He is the Alpha and the Omega, and he's, He's Almighty God, but He's also Abba Father. Amen? And Abba Father means Daddy. And daddy is not a slave driver. Daddy is not someone with a whip in his hand who wants to to cause you to to knuckle under. Daddy is somebody whose lap you can crawl up into. You can tell him that that you love him. And he tells you that he loves you. He draws near to you. He picks you up when you're hurt and and he mends your wounds. That's the Savior that we serve. And our love for Him ought to compel us. Our love for Him ought to be what drives us to share our faith. Not because we feel like we have to, but we get to. When I got engaged, I, we called, I called my parents, Mom, I'm engaged. I mean, why? Because I'm excited. Why? Because I love my wife. I want everybody to know it. But you know what? When we love God, should we not be the same way? Hopefully when you got saved, you didn't go, how was your weekend? Well, yeah, I went to, went, yeah, I went to a baseball game, went to the, oh yeah, I went to church, got saved. And then, uh, you know, I mean, hopefully it's not that way. Hopefully it's not just, or maybe you didn't mention it at all. Hopefully it's something to say, you know what? I've been born again. I'm a new creation in Christ. I met the creator of the universe. Jesus is my best friend. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you what happened. That ought to be our response. That ought to be our heart. Not this man hiding that gift in a handkerchief. Oh, I'm scared to death. I better hide it because if I don't. You know what? Don't hide your light under a bushel. Amen? Hide it under a bush. Oh, no. I'm going to let it shine, right? Another, another one of those children's songs. Those who are faithful with what God has given, it says here He will give them even more. Look what it says here in verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that everyone who has will be given from what him who does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. Now that verse is taken out of context a lot. People use that talking about wealth. 
I had a guy tell me that one time. Well, the Bible even says those who, those who have much will be given more, and those who don't have much will be taken away and given to those who have a lot. No, that, yeah, that's a little out of context. I mean, that's not what the Bible says at all. This is talking about spiritual gifts. This is talking about those who are faithful. If you're faithful with the gifts God has given you, He's going to give you more. Isn't that good? If you just obey Him with whatever He's called you to do, He's going to give you even more gifts that you might glorify His name more, that you might have a greater impact on this lost and dying world. Verse 27. So not only do you have the unfaithful, but you have the outright rebellious. Look at verse 27. Look what it says about these people. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now a lot of people don't like this stuff in the Bible, but here's the reality. Most people will reject our Savior and do not want Him to be king. They want to be on the throne of their own life and sin has consequences. There are those who walk in obedience to God, those who are unfaithful but have been born again, and then there are those who are just downright enemies. The Bible says you're either for me or you're against me. You're either for God or you're against God. You're either one of His children or you're an enemy of His. And if you're an enemy of His, guess what? You're going to reap consequences. And it says there they will slay Him. The Bible says in Psalm 69, they hated me without a cause. That's speaking of a, of a um, messianic psalm. Those who love God and obey Him will be rewarded. Those who know God but disobey Him will be disciplined. But those who hate God and refuse to bow to Him will be judged. If you live for heaven, you'll find satisfaction on earth. If you live for this world, you will never be satisfied. Now, while our Savior's meeting with Zacchaeus and his sharing of the parable of the minas were indeed divine appointments, let's move on. We've got about another 10 minutes or so. I want you to look here at the most ultimate of all the divine appointments, the one that was yet coming. Jesus had divine appointments. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus had the divine appointment of rewarding the faithful. But they would not be possible if He did not come to the ultimate divine appointment. And the ultimate divine appointment was the cross that stood before Him. You know, it's interesting to me. I love the Bible, as you probably figured out by now. But I love the Bible. And you know what? If you look at Daniel... It says in Daniel chapter 9 that from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the day that the prince will enter in, it will be, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but it will be 69 sevens, which is 483 years. You take a Babylonian calendar of 483 years, it works out to 173,880 days. The date that it was commanded that they would rebuild Jerusalem was on March 14th, three, I lost it on my notes, March 14th, 445 B.C. 173,880 days later, we come to verse 28. And that date was April 6th, 32 A.D. And exactly what God said in Daniel chapter 9, verses, I believe it's 25, 26, right in there, when they commanded and said it would be 173,880 days, guess what? 173,880 days after King Artaxerxes commanded they rebuild the, the walls of Jerusalem, Jesus comes marching in to, again, you want to talk about divine appointments? 173,880 days to the day, Jesus comes marching in. Divine appointment. The ultimate divine appointment. Look at verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up into Jerusalem. Now, I want to say this. This is now Passion Week. This is the final week of our Savior's life. And it says He's going up to Jerusalem. And again, since it was Passover, 
Jerusalem was swollen up with people. Three times as many people were there. They were, they were celebrating Passover. But remember, what was Passover? Passover was a picture of the cross. Remember what happened to Passover? They took the blood of the firstborn spotless lamb, they put on the doorpost on the mantle a perfect, perfect picture of the cross, and anybody who had that blood on their door, the angel of death would pass over. They remembered their deliverance from bondage out of Egypt, the deliverance of bondage from their, their slave masters. And now they've been set free. And they were remembering that at Passover. And isn't it interesting that our Savior was going to be crucified at Passover? Why? Because He was the Lamb of God. Remember what the Father said? Behold, the Lamb, or what, Jesus, what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And it came to pass when He drew near to Bethphage and Bethany on, at the mountain of, called Olivet, that He sent two of His disciples. So on His way, He passes through these cities. We know much about them, but again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into too much detail. You know that Bethany was the city where Lazarus and Mary and Martha were from. Bethphage was a place called the House of Unripe Figs. It was on the, on the road there. The Mount of Olives was a hill directly across at the base of Gethsemane. And he says to Jewish disciples, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So the Lord gives this command and says to, to, these, to the apostles of His, I want you to go, and there's a donkey, and I want you to go... Now, does this tell you that there's divine appointment? Does this tell you that God's in control? He knows that the donkey's going to be waiting for Him. He knows there's going to be a cult there. He knows that people are going to ask Him a question. And He says, when they ask you, just say, My Lord has need of it. Now, the fact that they went and found this donkey, it's interesting because it's a fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he sends these men out. Now, the, here's the thing. These guys went out and they were faithful. They responded in obedience. He said, I want you to go and find this donkey. He didn't say, well, what do we need a donkey for? You know, sometimes God is calling us to do things and we want, you know, well, help me out with that, Lord. What's a donkey? What do we need? We don't need a donkey. What's a donkey for? And, you know, what do you mean? Where, how do you know it's there? And how do you know that they're going to ask me that question? And, you know, sometimes we want God to, like, lay out the whole map and tell us everything that's going to happen, and then we'll be obedient. But you know what? What a blessing when we just obey God. Amen? These men went, they obeyed God, and watch what happens. Remember that the highest form of worship is obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. The highest form of worship is just obeying God when He calls us to do something. Verse 32. So those who were sent out went their way and found it just as He said to them. Imagine that. So the Lord told them something and it happened. You know, the Lord tells you something and it's going to happen. Amen? God's Word is faithful. If God promises you something, you can take it to the bank. Men will fail you, but God never will. These men responded in obedience and they went out and it was just as the Lord said it would be. Verse 33 and 34. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to him, Why are you loosing the colt? And they, said, and they said, The Lord has need of him. Notice that when the opposition came, they didn't debate, they didn't make excuses, they didn't run away, they just did what the Lord told them to do. The Bible says, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. As Christians, as you walk with God, and you are bold in your faith, you are going to face opposition. Don't run away. Don't hide. Just know that God said it would be that way. And you just be obedient to tell Him, you know what? God loves you. It's okay. doesn't matter. God's faithful and He loves you guys. 
And you know what? I knew opposition was going to come. If there's no opposition in your walk, if you're not being persecuted for your faith, you're not being bold enough. Because the Lord said, what did He say? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for My name's sake. For so they did the prophets who went before you. If you're not being persecuted for your faith, then your faith isn't strong enough. Because the more we stand up for God, then we're going to catch some heat. Amen? But that's a good thing. Again, we shouldn't catch heat because we're self-righteous. Yeah, man, you're going to fry, dude. Man, you better get right or you're going to get left. I mean, that's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to love people. But in that loving them and showing them the love of God, there are going to be those who persecute us. As His followers today, may we too respond in obedience to the calling He's placed upon our lives. May we hold lightly to that which is already His. May we not be so consumed with this world that we miss out on His blessing. Verse 35. Then they brought Him to Jesus. They threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on Him. And as He went, many spread their clothes on the road. In riding this unbroken donkey, it proves that God has victory or dominion over everything on this planet. It says they put their clothes on the road. Spreading one's garments on the street was an ancient act of homage reserved only for a king. So they, they, it re, they realized that he was a king. In Mark's account, they took out palm branches. This is Palm Sunday. And they began to wave the branches, symbolizing joy and salvation, pictured in the future royal tribute to Jesus Christ. The crowd was excited and filled with praise. Look what it says in verse 37. Then as he was now drawing near to the the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that He had done, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. We know from Mark's account they sang, Hosanna! Save now, we pray! Save us now! They, they called Him Son of David, which means Messiah. And while it seems they're truly worshiping Jesus, here's what they're really doing. They're saying, Overthrow the Roman government! Save now, we pray! Help us economically. Save now, we pray. Lead us militarily. Save now, we pray. The Jews were looking for a conquering Messiah to come and bless them physically, not a suffering lamb who would restore them spiritually. How do you look at God? Do you look at God as the holy Santa Claus up in the sky that will give you stuff if you're just good enough? You know, a lot of people, I hear Christians even say, well, if I do better, then God will bless me. And they're not talking about spiritual blessing. They're talking about physical stuff. These men saw Jesus and that's how they worshipped Him. Save now, we pray. Give us stuff. Bless us with stuff. And some of the Pharisees called Him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees knew that the people were proclaiming Him to be a deity. And they said, you know what? You better tell them to stop blaspheming. You better tell them to stop calling you God. And look at their response. I love this. Look at verse 40. But He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You know what? Jesus was going to the cross. He was going to pay the ultimate price. And if men did not worship and praise Him, then the rocks would. How many of you have ever heard that? There's a song on Air One. It says, I'm just a rock. You know, and it says, you know, it's, it's not my job to praise Him, but if you don't, I will. I mean, I like that song. Because you know what? The Bible says the rocks will cry out His name if we don't worship Him. But praise the Lord, He lets us worship Him. That's our job, not the rock's job. Amen? And it says, you know what? If they don't say it, then the rocks will say it. You can't keep the gospel silent. You can't keep there from being praise of Almighty God. Either we're going to do it or creation is going to do it. Awesome. Because He's Messiah, He was setting up His eternal kingdom, a reason for the greatest celebration of all. Let's look at the last eight verses. I apologize. We're going over just a little bit. Verse 41. Now as He drew near, He saw the city and He wept over it. How did Jesus respond when He saw Jerusalem? He began to weep. There's only one other time we saw Jesus weeping openly. When was it? 
Lazarus' tomb. Why was he weeping at Lazarus' tomb? The result of sin was death. He saw what sin had brought upon the world and it brought forth death. And he wept because of death. He wept because sin brought separation from God and it brought forth death. And he's weeping over Jerusalem. Why? Because he knows that judgment is going to come upon them. Why is judgment coming upon Jerusalem? Because they'd had the Old Testament. They'd had the law and the prophets and they rejected it. The Messiah had come and they had rejected Him. And He knew that at the cross they were going to have Him crucified. And He knew that they were going to continue to reject Him. And He knew that judgment was going to come upon them. Saying, verse 42, If you had known, even you especially in your day, the things that make, you, make for your peace... But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Isn't that interesting that this is talking about A.D. 70 when we know that Antiochus Epiphanes came in and, with the Roman army and just wiped out 600,000 Jews and just wiped them out, enslaved them, and destroyed the temple, just tore it to the ground. But isn't it interesting that Israel is still surrounded on every side today? Even though they come back and become a nation, they're still surrounded on every single side. Still that, it's still the case. Verse 44. And level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. They missed God. And the consequences were heavy. God had revealed a great deal to them, but they missed Him. Lastly, divine appointments. Rebuking those who, go, who live, or the, the religious hypocrites of the day. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. The multitude must have thought Jesus would head straight for the fortress and deal with the Romans. But you know what? When Jesus came to Jerusalem, he didn't go to the fortress and deal with the Romans. He went right into the temple and he dealt with the religious leaders. You know what? If Jesus came to the United States today, would he go to the White House or would he show up at some churches and start flipping some tables over? I think he'd show up at some churches. These people are ma- mailing out letters, you know, if you send in this and I'll, I'll, you know, and I'll send me a thousand dollar seed offering and all He'd be in there flipping some tables over. He'd say, you know what? You brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. What are you doing? You guys don't get it. He'd be flipping tables over. He'd come right to the church. Why? Because they've gotten so far away from the truth of who God is. We're not preaching the love of God anymore. We're using the name of God as a marketing tool. And that's what people have done. And he went straight in. And he cleansed the temple three years earlier, but it had become even more corrupt. They bought and sold. They had animals that were needed for the Jewish sacrifice. People didn't want to carry their animals hundreds of miles for sacrifice. You know what they did? They brought animals in that were unclean, and they charged people you know, exorbitant amounts for these animals that were unclean that should not even be sacrificed. They had to be perfect. Why? Because they were a picture of Christ. And he came in, and he saw what they were doing, and he turned the tables over. Look what it says in verse 46. It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. I would say that's pretty direct. He says, you know what? It's a house of prayer and you made it a den of thieves. You know what? Do we want to see God do mighty work? Do we want to see God? You want to see revival? You want to experience spiritual intimacy with the creator of the universe? You want to know God's will for your life? You want to be an effective tool for the kingdom of God? You want Calvary Chapel to make an impact on Santa Cruz? You want to see lost people saved? Here's the answer. Pray. You know, God just put this on my heart the other day. You're going to think I'm crazy. You know, I pray for all of you guys by name. But God put this on my heart the other day. As soon as I go full time, I'm going to try to spend some time every day and I'm going to pray for everybody in the phone book. I'm going to take the Santa Cruz phone book and just start going down the list and praying. You know, maybe we're going to be the only people praying for these people. Amen? 
You know what? We want to see God move. Let's start praying for people by name and watch what God does. Wouldn't it be great to run into somebody on the street? Dude, I, you're in the A's. I pray for all the A's. I, I, I've been praying for you. I mean, but prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes our hearts. Amen? And we ought to be praying. We want to see God move. Let's pray. His house should be not a den of thieves, not, a, not even a house of worship or a house of, of, of messages or a house of programs, but a house of prayer. Let's pray more. Every awesome revival that has ever happened in the history of the church began with prayer. Amen? People used to say to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, how come, what, why are people standing out in the rain? Why are there thousands of people in your church standing outside in the rain and listening to you teach for two hours? And he took them downstairs and he said, because this room is full of people praying every time I'm preaching. You know what? We want to see revival. Let's pray more. And that doesn't mean over your Wheaties. It means, you know, an intimate prayer life. Amen? Praying specifically to watch God move. Verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for the people were attentive to hear him. What did the scribes want to do? They were confronted with their inward corruption. They did not repent, but sought to kill him. When confronted with our sin, we can do one of three things. We can make excuses, we can accuse others, or we can repent. And these guys accused the Lord. They would not repent. So if the worship team will come up, In conclusion, our God is a God of divine appointments. We saw His divine appointment to reach the lost individual, Zacchaeus. He went out of His way. He specifically could have gone any direction, and He went right through Jericho. Why? Because He wanted to reach one man. That's our God. We see His divine appointment to encourage His followers to remain faithful, giving them the parable of the minus. We see, again, His ultimate divine appointment, which was the cross. We're going to look at that in the coming weeks. That He went there to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. Restoring sinful man back to holy God. Only, the only way that could happen is if he was obedient to go to the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord. And we thank you that you loved us so much. We thank you, Lord, that by divine appointment, that you called each one of us by name. And I thank you, Lord, that you even gave us the faith to respond. And Lord, I just ask if there's anybody here this morning who has not responded to that calling, who's not said, yes, Lord. He's not been like Zacchaeus to receive you. That, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may their hearts be softened to see their need for you. And may they not leave this place this morning without having a relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that you're not a, a distant, faraway God, but you're a loving and a gracious and a merciful Heavenly Father. Lord, you love us so much. And, Lord, I pray that our love for you would grow every single day. Lord, may we be faithful to the calling You've placed upon our lives. And Lord, may we never take the cross for granted. So Lord, I just thank You and praise You for this morning. I thank You for each person who's here. Lord, just as we worship You now, Lord, may we just lift up our voices. May it be sweet in Your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand up and worship.